Amen. I just pulled my pulpit off. <laughs> That's awesome. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Wasn't that amazing having the kids in here singing? I always love to hear little voices giving praise to God. Um, that was my daughter who read the verse. She's cute. I love her. Uh, you know, children should be a reminder to us about Christmas as we think about how Christ first appeared. And our Lord appeared as a child to save this world. And he later taught us that if anyone wants to inherit the kingdom of heaven, they must become like a child. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. And he said that to indicate that only humble people can receive a humble God. That is the God we serve, a God of humility. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing our two-part Advent series. This is the second week. Pastor Ben Kai preached last week on the announcement of the birth of Jesus and Advent simply means coming. And we've been recently looking at both the first coming of Jesus and his anticipated second coming. I'll say it again, we're one week closer to that day. Uh, but the first coming of Jesus we know began with the birth of a child. When God put on flesh and was born to a virgin named Mary. And she was instructed by an angel that that child was to be given the name Jesus that sweet name, and it's in that child that this world would receive the salvation of God because, you see, Jesus simply means God saves, and he does. And, and so now Jesus, of course, we know didn't remain a child, but that he grew in wisdom and stature, both in favor with God and man, and eventually became an adult and began his public ministry, which only lasted for about three years until he was crucified and his death didn't put an end to his ministry. In fact, that was just really the beginning of it because Jesus rose again. And Jesus ascended back to heaven alive so that right now he is ministering to us from that place, that eternal place called heaven, that kingdom that Jesus invites the humble to receive by faith. And so today, what we want to do, what I wanted to do on this second Advent teaching is I just want to talk about Jesus. And he's like, okay, at church, don't we always talk about Jesus? Yes, it's true. But I want us to have a very good and high view of who he is and what he has done for us. And when I think about that, I can't think of a better place to look than the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is a book that just exalts Christ to his supreme place that he belongs. And more specifically, there's a section in the book of Colossians, verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. So Open your Bible, Colossians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. And just to set the context for this book, we know that the whole aim of Paul's letter to the Colossians is to show what the true nature of Jesus is. Paul simply wanted to remind those then and those of us today who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so this letter was written to exalt Christ the Son of God, to show his, his place in eternity and to give us a correct representation of his person and his work. And so this section we're looking at here this morning, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, is 
sort of like a hinge. This, this letter, in a sense, hangs upon this section. Many scholars believe that it became something of a poem or a hymn of the early church. And so, as we will read this poem or this song, we're going to see how packed full it is of theological truth about Jesus. It's written in such a language that, that it comes out so perfectly that we have to agree that the Spirit of God inspired it. I can't come up with words like the Word of God does in declaring to us who Jesus is. And so the Spirit of God knew exactly what he was doing when he had Paul pen these words for Scripture, knowing that this teaching on Jesus would be something like a litmus test of Christology, meaning that this would be the standard for theology on the person of Jesus Christ, meaning any view of Jesus that, that does not line up with this description of him that we're about to see here is false teaching, and it must be completely avoided at all costs. And, and I want to give you a sobering view before we start this message is, is this is that a wrong view of Jesus can cost a person their soul. So if giving a wrong view of Jesus can cost souls, then God help me today that I would give a proper view of Jesus. And so before we read this amazing section of Scripture, let me just pray for us and ask that God would reveal Jesus in our midst. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are, and for what you have done for us. We thank you, God, that you have given us the word that reveals to us exactly who you are and that you reveal to us the invisible God, the God of all creation. And so we love you. We want to serve you. We want to put you in your proper place within our hearts here this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Colossians chapter 1, let me read the whole section that we'll look at today. It starts in verse 15, and we're going to go down to verse 20. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Amen. So this section, the context of it, where it starts out, he, Paul is speaking about Jesus. Right before this, it tells us that Jesus is the son of the father's love and that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins. And that's what this part will also end by saying. But we see there in that first verse, verse 15, where it says this, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the word used there for the image is the Greek word icon. And in my study of the, that Greek word, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know how to read 
those who are Greek scholars, I, I learned to find that this word icon, which is used several times in the New Testament, as well as in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of it, the Septuagint, this word carries this robust meaning uh, of, of an image, of an icon. And, and, and so when we think about this word, we think about the way that an image gives likeness and how an image gives representation and how an image gives manifestation. So the ideas of likeness, representation, and manifestation are carried within that word icon. Now those are big words, let's unpack them. Likeness. Jesus is the exact likeness of God. The way in which you would look into a mirror. You guys all maybe leaving for church this morning, stood in front of a mirror and you know, made sure you know, your collar was right, but when you look in a mirror, you're gonna get what you're gonna get. You know, it, you'll, you see it, you know, you can maybe doctor it up a little bit, but you're going to see what you're going to get. And you'll see the same reflection of who you are. And in the same way, Jesus is that way with God, his father. Jesus is of the same essence as the father and the spirit, meaning that the father is God and Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So Jesus is the likeness of God. And then it also speaks to us as representation. So Jesus represents God to us. The way in which an icon would, or, or a logo, if you were to pull out your phone, you would have all those little icons on your, uh, on your smartphone, and, and those images would tell you, you know, um, what that links to. So we all know maybe what the Instagram app looks like or the Facebook app, or even if you were to look at the, the logo of Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes, without any words attached to it, you would say, oh, that's the Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes logo. And in the same way, when we look at Jesus, he represents God to us. When we see him, we say, oh, that's God. And then manifestation. And I love this one because manifestation is the idea of revealing something, to make something known. And so Jesus makes known to us the nature and the character of God. Jesus reveals God to us. And many times people think about God in these terms. They think about the God of the Old Testament, which would be like God the Father, and that God the Father is more, you know, kind of angry and a little bit uptight, you know, and kind of more strict, you know, and then here comes Jesus in the New Testament. He's a little bit nicer, you know. He's, he's sweeter, kinder, gentler. He's trying to talk his father off the ledge a little bit, like, hey, Dad, like, go easy on them. And that's not the idea of God at all. See, Jesus manifests the Father to us. Jesus was compassionate, which is to show us that God the Father is compassionate. Jesus was forgiving, and that shows us that God the Father is forgiving. Jesus was angry at injustice, showing us that God is angry with injustice. Jesus reveals and makes known to us. He manifests God to us, and that is why it is so important that when we read the Gospels, what you're reading is the full nature and character of God by the words that Jesus spoke and by the actions that he demonstrated, when you look at Jesus, you are looking at who God is. 
But here's the question we should ask. Why does all this matter? Well, it's important because God the Father is not unknowable, but he is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, God is king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, he alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. No one has ever seen the Father nor can see him. And I'm reminded of the Old Testament that says that if anyone were to see God, they would die. And that's still true of God, but what is also true of God is that he wants us to know him. And he wants us to have a relationship with him. And so he went to the most extreme measures to do this in that he sent his only begotten son into this world in our likeness, the likeness of men in order that he would manifest God to us, in order that we would see the visible image of God in the person of Jesus. That's why the apostle John writes in John chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God who was at the Father's side, he, ha- he who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Sorry about that. But what that's saying is, we haven't seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Or John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or listen to this verse in Hebrews 1.3 that tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus demonstrated and lived out the very nature of God, meaning that Jesus pictures and personifies God for us in every way, So while we could not see God in his invisibility and in his infinite glory, Jesus, who is God, lowered himself, humbled himself, took on human flesh so that we could visibly see him and understand God. That's why the beginning of 1 John is so powerful when the Apostle John says this, We heard him with our ears. We saw him with our eyes. We handled with our hands concerning the word of life that life was manifested. Those words testify to us about Jesus being God in human flesh. And you're like, well, I've never seen him. And that's true. We walk by faith and not by sight, but the reality of who Jesus is, that God came into human history nearly 2,000 years ago, is, is verifiable. There are many proofs that a man named Jesus walked this earth, and he is more than a man. And so when he walked the earth, he had disciples, followers who he taught the kingdom of God, and taught the heart of the Father too. And one day, one of his disciples, Philip, 
said to, the, said to him this. In John chapter 14, verse eight through nine, I love this. Philip's like, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He's like, I've never seen God. I wanna see God. Show me God. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Therefore, looking at Jesus will show us exactly who God is and that we can know him. Now, listen, Satan's whole program, and Satan's just as real as God. He is nowhere near his power or authority, but Satan is called the God of this world, and his whole agenda is to blind people from seeing Jesus because Satan knows that Jesus perfectly reveals God to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image, icon of God. So here's a principle, is that God made knowing him so easy and so accessible that he left heaven and came to earth. Tell me any other God in any other religion of the world that did that. See, this is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions, is that all religions is man's attempt to ascend to God, to either be God or try to work their way toward God. Christianity is different in that Jesus descended to us in the incarnation and gave himself as a sacrifice for sin to mankind. While we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. Now, many false religions, false teachers don't have a problem with the fact that Jesus represents God to us, but they don't want to believe that Jesus is God himself. And again, scriptures are plentiful clear that Jesus is God, and this is what we're seeing in Colossians chapter 1. We, we know this from the prologue, from the beginning of John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and so it wasn't just the apostles who believed that Jesus was God and identified him as so. Jesus himself claimed to be God. Listen to this. In John chapter 8, verse 56 through 59, there's this encounter that Jesus has with the Jewish religious leaders and he makes this claim about being the I am. And they knew exactly what he was talking about, that he was claiming to be God. It says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, they wanted to throw stones at him for blasphemy because he was claiming to be God and ultimately got a hold of him and crucified him for that very reason. But by the resurrection, Jesus proved to be the great I am. And so we have to understand something here. <clears throat> for all people, whether Jew or Gentile, Let's just start with Jewish people first. 
If a Jewish person says, I believe in God, I believe in Yahweh, but I do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and I certainly do not believe that Jesus is God the Son. See, if you reject that of Jesus, you reject all of God. Or if a Gentile, a pagan person says, I believe in God, I just don't believe that Jesus was God. He was a great teacher, he was an excellent leader, he was a moral guide, but I don't believe that he is God. Guess what? They are rejecting all of God. So that goes for any religion, that goes for any teaching that rejects the true nature of Jesus, that he is God and that he shares the divine nature with his Father and the Holy Spirit. But the uniqueness about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is that he is also fully man. And that is how he can be the image of the invisible God. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that's what we're going to continue to see in our section. So please hear me. You might notice that I've been quoting some scriptures, and I'm going to quote a lot more scripture today. Because let me tell you this, scripture will always do a much better job at revealing Jesus to us than our words ever could. And, and, and I was thinking about this of like, you know, Advent message, should I just get up here and get like a hoorah message, it's Christmas, let's go everybody, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells. You know, I was like, what should I, I was like, no, it's Christmas. I want to give the highest and most exalted view of who Jesus Christ is. And so we're going to continue. Amen? Amen. And so scripture reveals God to us in this way. Listen to the opening of the book of Hebrews, which was written to Jewish believers. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is speaking about the whole Old Testament, seeking to reveal God by the law. Look at verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So that brings me to the next point, which is a basic question that anyone could ask and everyone should ask is, who created everything? I mean, we look at this universe around us and it's like, who made all of this? And a person would hopefully accept that if someone were to be the creator of the universe, then that would make them God. <laughs> and, and so we know how the Bible begins, right? By saying in Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And since God created the heavens and the earth, then we simply need to read the next verse here in Colossians to confirm the deity of Jesus Christ. Because look at verse 16, it says, for by him all things were created. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So if Jesus was not God, then the Bible could not make that claim. Again, going back to John chapter 1, in verse 3 it says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So listen, false 
teachers, false religions will have some fine ways of trying to explain this away. They'll say, well, you know, God created Jesus and then Jesus made everything else. Well, the easy answer to that is all things cannot mean all things except himself, right? It must mean all things. It does not say in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created Jesus who then created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. He created angels and humans, oceans and skies, lands and animals, insects, all the creepy ones, lights and all, all. He made you, most importantly, he made you. Jesus created all things because he's God. Now, we skipped the second half of verse 15 for the reason of coming back to it because many false teachers will bring up this word in verse 15, the second half of it, where Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And this verse has been used and abused and manipulated in so many ways to try to teach that Jesus is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses are one religious cult today that will point to this verse and say, see, Jesus was the first created being. They'll say that Jesus was not God, that he's the firstborn over all creation. Well, when Paul used that word firstborn, it's the Greek word prototokos, It's not referring to firstborn in chronology, in matter of time, but firstborn in priority. So for instance, like I'm I'm not the firstborn of my family. I have a brother who's three years older. He came out of the womb first. He's the firstborn. So I'm the secondborn. But you know, as my mom used to always tell me, I'm the favorite one. So. So in the biblical use of this word firstborn, again, it's not speaking of the first an oldest sibling, it's speaking of priority. It's speaking of standing. Um, Rob mentioned to me after first service that, you know, the first lady, is she the first lady to ever exist? No, but their place of prominence is called the first lady, right? In the same way, it's true for Jesus, that Jesus has priority and that he is the inheritor of everything from his father. In John chapter three, verse 35, it says the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Another example of this is Solomon in the Bible. You guys all know Solomon, David's son. Now Solomon was not David's firstborn child, However, he was the one who became the next king of Israel after his father because he was firstborn in priority in the same way that Jacob became the firstborn over Esau when he sold his birthright. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 89, verse 27. God says in a prophecy about the Messiah, he says, I also shall make him my firstborn. And then he defines what he means by saying the highest of the kings of the earth. Again, referring to his position being even higher than King David or King Solomon or any other king that has ever existed. The author of Hebrews also mentions another point about Jesus being the firstborn. In Hebrews 1.6, it says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all God's angels worship him. Let's just tackle another false teaching about Jesus, which is that some will claim that Jesus was an angel. 
Well, that can't be true because the Father would have said in Hebrews 1.6, and let all God's other angels worship him. So Jesus is not one of God's angels. He is the Son of God and God the Son. Therefore, in all of these things, Jesus is not a created being. He's not an angel. Angels do not receive worship unless they're fallen, and Jesus receives our worship. He's not merely a man who told us good things about God. He is God himself, the creator of all things. Therefore, all things were created by him, which means Jesus was not created but has always existed. Look, he existed in a time when all that existed was God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwelling in eternity in perfect unity spoke together within themselves and said this, let us make man in our image. He made you and he made me and he, he made everything that we see, even the things that we don't see in order to display to us who he is. All things were made in order to point us to God. Look, a sunset can point you to God, can't it? The heavens declare his handiwork. The stars in a dark night might point to the image of God. This gathering of believers in a church where we're reading his revealed word points us to the image of God. What we eat, what we drink, what we wear is all meant to point us to Jesus. Christmas is meant to point us to Jesus. And verse 16 says, for by him all things were created. Jesus made it all. So whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, Jesus made it all. <clears throat> you know, much of what we see is, with our eyes at least, is temporal and material. But do you know that Jesus also made a world that is spiritual and eternal? And I hope that you're aware of the reality that there's a whole other dimension spoken of in scripture that is not visible to the human eyes yet, but it is nonetheless real. In fact, I would say that it is even more real than anything that we see right now. And so Jesus has gone to a place to prepare for us so that when we die, we will be with him where he is. So heaven is real. Heaven is real. And the only way you can know it is if Jesus reveals this to you and brings you to that place that he created. So whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul is saying, land or skies, demons or man, Jesus made it all and he has control over it. He has control every over every form of human government that has ever existed. He is at the highest place. He has control over every spiritual government in hierarchy and is Lord over all of it. He is the Lord over men and he's the Lord over the world of angelic hosts. Jesus is Lord over all. So I love these words that Paul uses to express the totality of of Jesus' reign, the totality of him as creator and ruler. We were created by him 
He spoke this world into existence, every single one of us. We were created through him. Nothing came into a being apart from him, and we were created for him in that all creation is to point back to his glory. By, through, and for are all words to encapsulate everything, guys, everything. It's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I love the parallelism of that, is that God the Father and God, the Jesus, and God Jesus are both the workers of creation, including the Spirit of God who hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter one. So then we can say this. <clears throat> this is the proper view of the God that we serve and that we teach in this church. The Father is a person and he is the God of all creation. The Son is a person and he is the God of all creation. The Holy Spirit is a person and he is the God of all creation. And not one of these persons was ever created, but together they have always existed as one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons and one God. Not three gods, but one God with Jesus being the express image of God. Why? Because he added humanity to his deity. Jesus came in our image, flesh and blood. You could have touched him. Why? So that in his body, he could be crucified to deal with sin because our image has been marred by sin. And Jesus came to this world to restore the image of God to us and to restore the image of God in us. And God knows you and he loves you and he wants a relationship with you so much so that he would send his son to die on a cross for you. And not only that, but that he would send his spirit to dwell in you as a living temple. Amazing. Well, let's continue because after creation, Jesus' work was not over. It had to be maintained. All things, or, or verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things in Greek just means all things. And, and all things means everything in this room. Jesus holds it together. Hopefully right now, he's holding together your attention to hear the word of God so that you would know who Jesus is. But not only does he wanna to hold together your attention and he wants to hold together your mind, your body, your soul, your spirit, and every last bit of your being, he wants to hold it together. He's also holding together the chair that is under you right now so that it doesn't dissolve into the dust that it came from. You see, I'm not, don't pretend to be scientific. Some of you know a lot, a lot more than I do. I'm kind of more of a Bible guy, but, and, and look, the Bible's not like necessarily a book of science, but it tells us that God is our creator. And, and as far as I understand from physicists is that 
this world is made up of protons and neutrons and electrons and all kinds of other ons that you probably know a lot more about than I do. But, but Jesus is the one who is holding them all together and he holds it together by the word of his mouth. And it's been said by scientists that if the speed of the earth spinning on its axis were to slow down or to speed up by just a degree, we would all be toast. And there's a time coming where, in a sense, that's going to happen. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We just learned about that, right? Are we fully aware that Jesus can come like a thief in the night? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And so we live in this universe that secular physicists even will state that every object that is around us is at the brink of unraveling and destroying in a nuclear explosion. But it goes on to say in 2 Peter 3.11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And so it's a great time to ask this question. If Jesus holds together everything in this universe, am I one who is living in submission to him or am I living in rebellion against him? Do I know him and does he know me? If God is going to let all that we can see dissolve, what kind of person am I? What does my life look like right now? Is my relationship with God one of peace or one of rebellion? And it's Jesus who came into this world so that it can be a life of peace. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is the head of the body, this church. He is in this church right now, ruling and reigning and leading over it. And he is being declared to us today. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the director of the church, but he's also said here to be the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might be supreme or have preeminence. You know, do you guys like being first? I love being first. I love, you know, Christmas coming up. I want to be the first one to get my food in the little buffet line. When I'm surfing, I want to be the first one to catch a wave. I, I love being first. I, I like being last to wake up in the morning, but for the most part, I like being first, and, and human nature is that way. We love being first. We love being in control, too. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to come to understand that you got to get used to not being first. Jesus said the first will be last, and the last will be first. See, because in God's kingdom, there will only be only ever will be one who is first, and it's Jesus. Jesus has the supremacy. Jesus is preeminent, meaning he is to be first place in everything. Jesus is not simply prominent. He is to be preeminent. Why? Why does Jesus have to be first? Because we're bad at being first. I'm so glad that I I now have one who is first in all things in my life. 
that Jesus for me is first in life, that Jesus for me is first in death. Because look, I, apart from Jesus, I wouldn't know how to die. Jesus has taught me what it would mean to die and how to do that. He's first in resurrection. And even though I don't entirely know and comprehend all that that will be, I'm so glad he went first in that. He is first all things. Why? He goes first so that he can show us how it's done. And so if you're living for yourself, if you're living for the first place, if you're living and saying, Jesus, you can be prominent in your life, Jesus, you can be second in my life, but I will be preeminent, I will be first, I call the shots, you can come along. That is not the offer that Jesus takes. See, Jesus wants to be Lord over all of your life. Jesus is not just meant to be Lord at Christmas time, where we just say, all the rest of the year is my time of the year, and then in December, Jesus, you can have December. Jesus wants your life 365 days out of the year until you go to be with glory in him, because he is first, first in all things. So do you look to him first to learn how to love? Do you look to him first <coughs> how to be a spouse or a parent or in any other thing that you do? And then in verse 19, it says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Ooh, that's such a good verse because what this tells us is that that word fullness is this Greek word pleroma, and it mattered a lot in the first century because there was a, a heresy that already began to come about with Gnosticism, that Jesus was, was not fully God and that he wasn't fully man. This has been on attack ever since the beginning of the church. And this word here, pleroma, denotes the totality of God the fullness of God, all his omniscience, all his omnipotence, all his omnipresence, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the body of Jesus so that he could be 100% God and 100% man. And how does that add up? Well, God is beyond our mathematical thinking. God is beyond our scientific thinking. God is beyond our philosophical thinking. Any kind of thinking you wanna think, Jesus is over it all. And this word tells us how to think about Jesus, amen? Amen. So this Bible today from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 20 has told us who Jesus is, but this final verse really just brings it all home. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It all comes back to the cross. See, the cross is the centerpiece of God's redemptive story. He's made peace by the blood of his cross so that when God wanted us to know who he was and who he is, he came to earth in the form of a man. He was born as a child. And when God wanted to save us from the penalty of sin and rebellion against him, he paid the price of that penalty by dying on a cross in our place. He shed his blood, perfect and sinless blood, to wash away your sins and to offer you forgiveness. And so the story of God climaxes at the cross. And it's mind-blowing because you have to think, what is God doing 
bleeding on a cross, the God who made it all hanging there for capital punishment, and yet he was doing something that pleased the Father. He was paying for our sins, the sins of this world. For everyone, every last one of us has sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've talked a lot about who Jesus is. Romans 3.23 pretty much tells you what you are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin made us enemies of God. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But if you allow Jesus to make peace between you and God through his shed blood on the cross, you can have everlasting life with your image of God restored. If you believe that and you receive that, you will receive life eternally because it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves you, and God does not want you to perish in your sins. It's why it says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. Will you enter into that peace here this morning? The way to enter in is to know who Jesus is, that he is God, and what he has done, and that he came in the flesh, born to die, to die for the sins of the world, for me and for you. And I pray for everyone in here, it would be a reality for you, that you would know Jesus and what he has done to save you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for this scripture, Lord. We wouldn't know you unless your word had revealed Jesus to us in this way. And Holy Spirit, I know that you are working right now, Lord, because anytime Christ is exalted and lifted up, the spirit is at work to open blind eyes. And so we know that Satan's whole program is to blind people from seeing the light that is the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. But you have shown forth today. You have manifested your life and your love and your grace to everyone in here today. And so if you're here right now and you feel that for the first time, you have heard about who Jesus is, you've learned about what he has done for you and you wanna say, I want him to be first in my life now. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want to put Jesus second, third, fourth, whatever it is. I don't want to reject Jesus. I want to be in submission to him. And if that's you, you want to come to Jesus today. You want to surrender your life to him and let him be Lord over your life. Would you raise your hand so I could see to lead you in a prayer? I see you right back there, sir. Praise God. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Just raise your hand if you want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. See the gentleman back there. Praise God. Well, if you've raised your hand, simple as this. Come to Jesus and say, Lord, I need you. Be my God. Be my Savior. Be my friend. Be everything to me. 
and Jesus will come into your life and he will completely transform it. And so for all of us here, amen, amen. All of us here who love and serve Jesus, let's close out with this last song and just exalt him in our midst. I pray that today this high and lifted up view of Jesus has blessed your soul. Let's worship him.